this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. Thank you for tuning in today to another lesson taught by W. Cleon Skousen. Today's lecture is number 33 on the Old Testament, given in 1973 to his university class. It is unscripted and unedited. The text used today is from the Bible, 1 Kings chapter 9-14, through 14, supplemented by Dr. Skousen's book, The 4,000 Years, which can be found online, or if you prefer to listen to the book, you can find it at audible.com. Today we cover chapters 10 and 11, The Life and Fall of King Solomon. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! Now let's say then for Tuesday, we'll have chapters 12 and 13. And that's the period of apostasy, and uh, it's a terrible period. Uh, this is the famous Jezebel and Ahab and the hit-and-run prophet named Elijah. He, go, he comes in, he gives them a prophecy, and before they can recover, he runs. He's just great. And they say, where's that man? Bring him back. They never can find him. So we call him the hit-and-run prophet. Because if they, they only want to bring him back to kill him. And he doesn't stay around that long. So um, you, you'll, you'll find that extremely interesting. <clears throat> now... This assignment was nearly 60 pages, but, but large print. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, we, we covered a terrific amount of territory. I noticed from your examinations that uh, you're a little bit below um, uh, par for our exams. So it was, uh, as the other class suggested, maybe a little on the technical side. Uh, but, uh, pardon? <laughs> well, that's what I meant. Some thought it was a little bit technical. But we really need to know that much about our, our Bible. Now, this summer I'll be in Israel, and we hope to see David Ben-Gurion. And uh, David Ben-Gurion will be... Um, uh, I mean, there's nobody in any of the genealogical tables that he doesn't know about. And he knows their mothers and their fathers. He knows the, the Bible like the palm of his own hand. And he said, we'll go down to the Negev because there's going to be riches there. And I think the Lord meant oil. They went down drilled, and by goodness, they're coming up with oil. And, uh, and he said, nobody's been able to find it yet, but I think if we dig on that tell, we're going to find uh, this ancient city. Uh, that's about the only hill that I would have built on in ancient times, so we better dig there. And this is about 40 years ago. They dig there, and they find all kinds of ruins, and pretty soon they find a stone, and the name of the city's on the stone. He's fantastic. Now, you see, we Latter-day Saints, we don't appreciate the Scripture that much. I mean, this just, it, it isn't that much of our lives. And I don't think our Heavenly Father is pleased with us when we're this casual about these very sacred writings. I think he expects us to know them better. So in our classes, we're trying to get that little spark where you do feel comfortable. When, the, when you flip open the Bible, you, you uh, come to a name that... Uh, Abishag, you know all about Abishag. I mean, Abishag, she won the beauty contest. And, She's David's last nurse, uh, you know, Abishag. And she certainly got Adonai Adonijah in trouble, didn't she? At least she was so pretty that um, he wanted her for a wife, and it cost him what? His life. His life. He really paid for that one. Didn't get her either. Well, <clears throat> this is just a part of the, uh, the picture that we want everybody to be familiar with and understand and know. Now, this chapter on the Golden Age has a lot of interesting material in be, but uh, I'm going to go over it rather rapidly so I can get into the last chapter, which is kind of a tragic one, chapter 11. 
King Solomon's golden age was the result of his father's very difficult life of war and uh, bringing the people into um, uh, homage to Israel so that David left this life with his kingdom stretching from where to where? From the Euphrates River clear down to the River Nile. So he covers all this territory. Now in the days of Solomon, we have this enriched so that we move from a political kingdom to a kingdom of great wealth and influence under Solomon. And so that's what we want, particularly want to remember about him. And I want to mention something that was apparently confusing in the minds of some. How long did it take Solomon to level the top of Mount Moriah for the temple and set up the temple block? It was three years, and in the beginning of the fourth year, he started the temple. So it was a little over three. And then um, uh, we say three to four, right in there. I would accept either one. Then how long to build the temple? Yes, now, see, some got the impression that since the word, the name seven came up, you subtract three from seven, you get four for the temple. Uh, but it's, it's one on top of the other. It's three and a half plus seven, which takes it up into the 11th year. And then they waited until the holidays of the next year, so the temple was dedicated in the 12th year of the reign of Solomon. Now, does everyone kind of have that clear now? Because quite a few of you had four, and so I must not have made that very clear in my lectures. <clears throat> now, Solomon knew that one of the great tasks that he would have to maintain the peace would be to stop the Fertile Crescent from fighting from both ends in Israel. The Fertile Crescent from the Assyrians and Babylonians are over here. The Egyptians are here. In the days of Abraham, which is 2000 BC, they, were, they had constant exchange of goods and culture. They worshiped the same gods. They have a very similar language. Later on, they get to fighting each other for conquest of the world. And where do they end up usually? Yeah, this is a nice meeting place all the time, you see. That's the main battlefield. And so the valley of Ezrelon, or Jezreel, it's, uh, it's half of each. Uh, let me just get a little bigger. That's Mount Carmel. Those are the mountains of Gilboa. And uh, this is, I'm in right, uh, right here. This is the uh, Sea of Galilee. No, it's up over a little bit. Sea of Galilee. And then these, this is Nazareth, the hills of Nazareth, right in here. Now, here is the Jordan River. Between here and here is one of the most beautiful, fertile valleys you'll ever see. And it rises a little bit to this point, and that's called Ezrelon. Ezrelon. Then it goes down toward the Jordan River very steeply, or rather rapidly, and that's also very lush farming land, and that's, that's Jezreel. So most of it today is called Jezreel. But the thing I want you to remember is that that's one of the most famous battlefields in the whole world. Napoleon fought there, the Babylonians fought there, the Assyrians fought there, the Egyptians fought there. Um, this is where King Josiah will be killed here in about three more chapters. Uh, and this is where Megiddo is located, after which Armageddon is named. And the great last battle of the Jews will start here. Here's Haifa, the big port of Haifa. An acre of the uh, Crusaders' days is right there next to it. So if there is a war in Israel, it'll start here. And it'll be right in this same Megiddo area. And that's why it's named Armageddon. Armageddon. And then it will move down and end up at Jerusalem. Any questions? So 
Solomon decides to ally himself with a new dynasty in Egypt. Now this dynasty, as far as we know, is non-Hamitic. Uh, what the ancient pharaohs would do, they would uh, become uh, lazy, they would hire foreigners to come in and be their soldiers, uh, often from up in northern Africa, uh, up and around in this district. And they'd have them come in as their soldiers and their stewards, and so when they got fat and lazy and indifferent, who took over? And that would make a new dynasty. And because the soldiers very frequently imported from the outside, uh, we know that the 22nd dynasty was from Libya and non-Hamitic. We think maybe the 21st was also. In any event, when Solomon married this Egyptian wife to make peace between the two countries, there was no opposition, ecclesiastical opposition to the marriage, although she was heathen. Why didn't he want to have her palace uh, on the Mount Moriah area where the temple was located? Well, I don't think we actually have any evidence of that, do we, at this point? That comes a little later. I think his main reason was a little bit different. Yeah, it's one thing to marry a girl for political reasons. It's another thing to have her part of the, a temple square. Uh, did he treat her with great respect? Yeah, so far as we know, no children. Um, in fact, we know there were no children from this marriage. Um, but he treated her as though she were the symbol of what? Political unity between Egypt and Israel. And he was very nice to her and wanted her to write home to daddy and say, he treats me very nice. <clears throat> we're doing all right. Did the father give her some nice wedding presents? Yeah, like a couple of cities, you see. It's very, very nice. All right, then Solomon built... Um, uh, his w wonderful, beautiful new palace. Uh, King David's palace was nice, built of um, cedars of Lebanon, but now we get a, a, a much bigger palace. We have many more things to administer now, and the palace is the administrative executive headquarters of the government. And so he sets up this rather large administrative building and palace, and it has light against light. What does that mean? This was a very famous thing to have light against light. Facing windows. Facing windows so that the upper story uh, from a distance you could see right through from window to window and that was very unusual in those days did they have glass did they know what glass was in those days yes um, uh, why don't we have any ancient glass that we can uh, use to prove it it breaks yeah that's one thing yeah during every war they break all the windows out what's another thing what at least find a few broken panes shouldn't we what happens yeah glass decays glass decays um, so it goes right back to the silicates you see from which it's made so uh, you don't have any ancient glass you get out here on the desert and they call them you know colored bottles that you sell etc but uh, that's not very ancient 50 years so far but real ancient glass doesn't exist because it deteriorates now um, he had his famous throne when we visit Istanbul we take you and show you a throne made of solid gold uh, the, the, the throne itself it sits on a table. I used to sit on the throne cross-legged. This one is a solid gold. It's about, uh, oh, I'd say two and a half to three inches thick, carved like a chair. And that's pretty heavy. And it's uh, then seated on a, on a dais that is covered with um, a robe containing two million pearls. Two million pearls. They have um, rubies this big around in clusters they wear on the chest and on the head they have an emerald that weighs seven pounds the largest in the world 
seven pounds. They have a pearl that is two and one quarter inches, two and one quarter inches, the most valuable pearl in the whole world. And they have several others that are almost that big. You never saw such treasures. Now, in the ancient times, they used to like to have their kings have lots of treasures. Do you know why? The people just love to have their kings have lots of treasures. Why? Power and, and what does it what, what what does it represent in case of a crisis? It, 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 it well, it's tribute even before the crisis. What does it represent when a crisis comes? Power to buy soldiers. That's the security of the nation. They want to have the king very rich, so that if they were ever attacked, he can always go out and buy up an army. Mercenaries, you see. So that's why the ancient people always supported great wealth in their kings and took great pride in the fact that uh, Solomon, for example, will have 60 targets or small arm shields made of solid gold. And he has all kinds of decorations made of solid gold. Do the people resent that? Not at all. That represents security for the realm. Isn't that interesting? A whole different attitude, you see. The British feel the same way about the crown jewels. You go into the Tower of London and you see these fabulous jewels, but nothing compared to the jewels in Iran, which are all in hawk down in the bottom of a bank. And all of the money, all of the paper money of Iran is issued on those jewels. So that if you want to cash in, I mean, after all, the, the money's worth something. Of course, ours isn't. But... Uh, Theirs is backed by jewels. Ours used to be backed by gold and by executive uh, presidential order. Uh, it was made um, uh, illegal for us to have any gold. So they didn't have to redeem any of our domestic money with, with gold anymore. And so you can see we all were giving speeches for 30 years warning what would happen if we allowed our dollar to just become a floating piece of paper because it floats down all the time. And that means your savings are floating down all the time. So we're paying the price now for something that all of us knew would happen, but if, now that I'm on that subject, let me just tell you what happened this last weekend. These individuals who are responsible for setting up our Federal Reserve System, for which they take $22 billion in interest every year, manipulated the European situation to a point. They, they knew where they were taking our dollar. They knew what they were doing with the gold. And they got us to a point where they dumped billions of American dollars over the weekend onto the German market. And Germany, bless their hearts, tried to save it and uh, poured in some billions to buy it up so that the price would sustain. But it reached a point where it was impossible to go further. And so our American government was forced to devalue the dollar 10%. Whose 10% was that? Yeah, the American people's 10%. And the next day, guess what the bankers did? They went back and bought all those American dollars back now at 10% less than they sold them for on Saturday. They made, uh, the Salt Lake Tribune said they made $600 million over the weekend by manipulating our money. And that came right out of you. Now that's really the next generation's inheritance that's being squandered in this manner. And this is what uh, President McKay used to mean when he would say, will you study and keep up with what they're doing and what's happening? Because you can change it. You can change the tide. You just need a fighting Congress and you can turn it. But if the Congress doesn't know what's going on, which they don't, uh, then they won't fight it. So we have the chairman of the Banking and Currency Committee, Wright Patman of Texas, pleading with our people to push the Federal Reserve Bank back into a um, 
public institution instead of having it owned by private stockholders. See, the Constitution doesn't permit that. And get us back on gold, which the Constitution requires. This Constitution was a great instrument. And we're abandoning it. And we keep paying for it, you see, without realizing what's happening to us. Well, that's what happened over the weekend. $600 million profit in one weekend. That's pretty good, pretty good take from the American people. And from Germany. It cost Germany millions, too. Now, <clears throat> this famous throne that um, Solomon had uh, was made of what? It was made of ivory, overlaid with what? Now, I've seen some of this ivory, but it isn't overlaid with gold completely. I mean, you just don't take ivory and wrap gold around it. You might as well use wood. What they do is to beautifully inlay the gold in the ivory. And I want to tell you that's a beautiful piece of artwork. Ivory inlaid with gold. And we think that's what he did. Now, he had the throne up on kind of a high dais with steps going down. And this throne was famous all over the Middle East. What was on each side of the throne? Lions of Judah. And on the next step, two lions. Next two steps, three steps, four steps, lions. Corridor of the lions. Now, King Hiram came along and uh, offered to help Solomon build something now besides a palace. What was it? Ships. How many? Ten. Ten ships. And until the archaeologists dug up the Lebanese evidence, we didn't really know what happened. And now we know the names of the men that were sent down by Hiram from uh, archaeological sources uh, the Lebanese had. And we also know the, the reason there was the bargain. Hiram said, I want to put my big Tarshish ships where? Down in the Indian Ocean and down in that way. I already run them in throughout the Mediterranean, most famous ships in the world. If you'll give me a port down at Ezean Geber, or at Aqaba Gulf, right here. If you let me use this port along with you, I'll help you build your ten ships. Now that, that was a, an Israel port then as it is now, so he agreed to do it. So the ten ships were built under the direction of, of Jews, Phoenicians. Who are the most famous shipbuilders in the world at this time? This is, uh, you see, we're, we're in about 950 BC, and the famous Phoenician boats uh, have several decks to them, and uh, about 800 BC, you're going to find Jonah getting onto one of these Phoenician ships called a Tarshish ship. And uh, even though they completely unloaded the boat of all of its wares, he was still hidden and asleep somewhere down there. So it's a big, big hold of a ship. Where's Tarshish? Spain, where they go for tin. And so these Tarshish ships, uh, they would take their wares all around the Mediterranean coast, load up with tin, and then bring it back and start over again. And they sold a lot of their tin, it turned out, to whom? Solomon, who had already had the what? The copper. And tin and copper together make, and this was the Bronze Age. So this is a real good business we got going here. <coughs> and we got a navy and everything. Now, how long are the ships gone as a rule? Three years. And when they, uh, when they come back, they're loaded with gold, which means they didn't leave with gold. They come back with apes and peacocks and spices and sandalwoods, and many strange and wonderful things from foreign lands, mostly from Ophir in, um, South a in, in Africa. But they get over to India, they go all the way around to India and up on the other side, over into the Spice Islands, Indonesia, and that territory over there. So three years was quite a trip. 
And these shepherds, you see, they've never been to sea in ships. And, the, and Hiram and his men are teaching them how to go to sea in ships. So they have to come home and they sing about it. Oh, big storms, big creatures in the sea, great dangers. But we were brave men, we return. <laughs> it's interesting to read these poems about themselves. Now, uh, when, um, uh, when Dr. Gluck, Nelson Gluck of Harvard University, made this discovery down in the Araba Valley, that was a big find. And you see, it was only back uh, in the, um, see, it was down there in the 30s, as I recall, uh, early in my lifetime, I know that, 37. Okay, now he got to digging down here. This is a valley, don't forget, where the Edomites used to live. And because it's the Arab Valley, they didn't call them Edomites anymore. They called them Arabs. Arabs, that's where the name comes from. And they settled all of North Africa and all this territory over to here. These are the Persians, Iranians. And they took all of the Saudi Arabia Peninsula. And so... He got to digging down there trying to find the port of Ezion-Geber because the Aqaba Gulf has re re receded. I mean, water's poured down there through the centuries, and the port has been pushed back and back. So he goes up the valley a ways and starts finding all kinds of evidence of a seaport. And he found where the boats used to be tied, and, and here it's now quite a ways inland. And incidental to that search, he found a blast furnace, the biggest blast furnace they have ever found in the ancient world. And this thing was probably capable of producing many of these wares that were put on the boats, these 10 ships that went around, traded it for gold and for peacocks and apes and sandalwood and all these wonderful things and spices for the soup. So you can see that it wasn't long before um, he became tremendously wealthy. Now, it was interesting that Dr. Gluck found this in the most untenable place in the valley. That valley is terrible during the spring winds. Those winds come down and blow at a terrific gale, 15, 60 miles an hour, with sand and dirt, and it's awful. And you can just move off a couple hundred yards near the cliffs, and it's no problem. The cliffs weave in and out, and they'll protect you. But you get right down the main Arab wash on the wadi, and that wind just comes shrieking down there during the, their spring winds. And lo and behold, that's where the blast furnace is. And it, it was a little while before Dr. Gluck could figure out what they did. They had set those flues and everything up so that the wind would just blow right through, make up for Nephi's bellows, you know, made out of, of skins. Use the natural winds. And it's very much like our, our, our Bessemer blast furnaces today. Now, just to appreciate Nephi a little bit. When the Lord said, um, I want you to build this ship now, I'll show a picture of it and vision of it. And, and Nephi said, I'd never seen a ship like that before. And uh, the Lord said, I want you to build that. Well, he said, I can't build it. I don't have any, I don't have any ore. See, I would have said tools, but he didn't. He said, I have some ore. I can make anything. So the Lord said, well, I'll show you where it is. And you can make the tools, and then you make the ship. So he showed him where the ore was. And then it says that whatever kind of ore it was, it required a blast furnace, of course. So... He developed one. Now, if he were using copper, it takes about 1,100 degrees Fahrenheit of heat to melt copper and a little over 250 to melt tin. You mix them together and what do you get? You get your bronze. And then they used to be able to temper it much better than we can. Uh, they were so good at tempering bronze, they would do the work of the finest steel. And in their surgical instruments, they would do trepanning on the skull in which they would scrape the skull and thin it right down so that they could put a silver plate over the hole from a battle axe. 
and the person would live. We can see where the bone grew up around the silver plate. They made those out of bronze. They made razors out of bronze, if you please. And they had eyebrow tweezers and... Uh, uh, isn't anything you girls have thought of that they didn't have that we haven't found bronze uh, uh, items of? of. Well, um, this undoubtedly is what he was trading. You see, he'd send those ships out with their holes filled with copper and bronze objects and then come back with gold. Nice trade, you see. And peacocks and apes and sandalwood and spices. So uh, these are very profitable adventures. Now, Solomon fortified the land, and I, I mentioned the cities to you so you'd give an idea, have some idea what it was like to try and fortify the land. And you see he has Hazor, which is way up here, and uh, Palmyra would be up about here, and then he had um, a city that guarded Jerusalem and another city that guarded Hebron here, and he had some cities up here that guarded Ephraim. And he had this the territory pretty well hemmed in and then he had all these chariots and horses that are very famous in ancient literature uh, the Arabs talk about Solomon's many chariots and and we found uh, some of the stables Megiddo, Megiddo has a whole system of stalls and stables where they must have taken care of hundreds and hundreds of horses simultaneously and pretty soon Solomon got in what business horse trading business now did he breed the horses where'd they come from and where'd he get the chariots to go with them yeah, they got a, an assembly line going down in Egypt. And uh, all he was was the broker. You see, this runs in the family. And uh, I don't know what the Ephraimites were doing in the meantime, but Judah was doing just well, just really well, and getting a lot of practice. They're great. They're great traders. The only, the only people that I've seen that are better businessmen and enjoy it more than the Jewish businessman is the Lebanese businessman. And they're Arab. And I think maybe I mentioned this earlier. If you want to see an exciting contest of wits, uh, do what I did in, in Beirut. I watched a, a Lebanese rug merchant dealing with a Jewish rug merchant. And I was only able to stay there for an hour. Now, this is about a $2,500 rug. And it was so interesting. I just happened to be there, and I, I can't buy any rugs myself, but I like to look at them. and, and uh, Persian rugs are very lovely and everything, but <clears throat> I saw him come in. He's very casual. And they're, they're old friends. They know each other. And um, you can obviously see that one is from Jerusalem and the other is, he's Arab and he's from, and they greet each other and they're speaking English. So I'm able to understand them. And, and uh, so the Jewish merchant says, I, I need um, a very fine rug. Uh, very fine. This customer wants a very fine rug. And the Lebanese merchant says, I've just what you want. I've just exactly what you want. It's beautiful, finest workmanship. Uh, been in one family for a couple hundred years. Well, he spreads this out here. And, and it was a beautiful rug. And, and you know, these rugs, um, they increase in value with the passing of time. It's a strange thing. They, have, they clean them. They take them clear back to Iran to clean them and so on. So he spread it out. And it was, it was a gorgeous rug. And, and the price there, I remember, about 2500 Oh, the Jewish merchants. That is too much for that one. It's very old. <laughs> I don't, I'm not so sure it's so good, you know. So far. Oh, the Lebanese merchants. That's the finest. That's the fi I'd give you the history. This I have the history in writing and so forth. And they go on like this. Right? Well, how much are you asking? 
And the Lebanese merchant told him, oh, no, not enough of that. No, 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 I couldn't prosper. So finally, why well, he starts to leave. And there's a little pattern. He'd, he'd, he'd go to the door. He started very briskly. Then he'd go slower and slower and slower. And finally, when he got to the door, he hesitated. Now the Lebanese merchant called him back. He says, we've been very old friends. Come back. We talk some more. So they come back. And he says, I tell you what I do. We are such good friends. I will reduce the price $400. And the Jewish merchant said, Oh, but I wouldn't even think of talking about it for 400 less than that. Oh, and the Lebanese merchant, he smiles. See, they got something going now, you see. <laughs> it takes a long time to work up to this point where, where they've each taken a position. And then they were jockeying. When I left them, they were getting, it was like this. On one of the first trips I went over, I was trying to buy a tablecloth. The man said, it's so much. And I said, thank you. I'll give you a traveler's check. And he said, you're going to buy it? <laughs> <laughs> And I said, yes, I like it. He says, but it isn't worth that much. <laughs> and I said, well, you said that was the price of it. Well, he says, that's where we start. <laughs> now we talk. I said, well, I thought that's what it was going to cost. Isn't worth that much. <laughs> so I, I really learned something from that. So they give you a price, you cut it in half. And as he pointed out, he says, uh, it is so nice to talk to people, you know. We like to talk about things. Said, All right, let's talk. <laughs> so I've learned since then. My Ephraimite blood just really goes to town, I tell you. Now, <clears throat> I had a little bit to say here about uh, stewardship of riches. And there are some of you who may have come from affluent families who know how much worry a father goes through who has wealth that accumulates and our Heavenly Father has a has a um, formula is um, when you come from modest circumstances like I did you think that somebody who's got a lot of wealth I mean they just they've got it you know sit on it enjoy it but that's not the way it is if you're wealthy you are miserable all the time with people who need money and you've got to decide which ones you will help and which ones you won't. And that constant decision-making is absolute misery. And um, very often, big, uh, wealthy families now turn it over to attorneys. They just don't want to be involved. And they may give a hint, we'd like to help this or that, but they, they, they actually have administrators, and then they set up foundations. But to administer wealth is a very painful process. First of all, you have a responsibility to to make it grow and increase. Secondly, you have a responsibility of dispensing it and sharing it and so forth in an intelligent manner so that it, it builds and does not corrupt. In any event, um, Solomon took the position that since they had become so wealthy and silver was like what? Stones in Jerusalem. You could do with a few today, couldn't you? A little rock pile would help. <laughs> Boy, silver's going up uh, right and left. So um, he did everything he could to make whom wealthy? to make whom wealthy? Everybody. See, he reached out and said, we'll use our wealth to help everybody come on up. Now, this is really what a person of wealth should do. You see, in the church, in the Mormon church, we have a very uh, unusual attitude toward wealth. Most Christian churches look upon wealth as um, the root of all evil. And that's not what Paul says. What did he say? It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And the second chapter of Jacob has a very interesting uh, implication. 
It says, first you make your commitment to your Heavenly Father. Make a commitment to Him that everything that comes into your possession, everything that you're able to get hold of and so forth, will be for a good cause. Then Jacob says, then seek riches. What's the rest of it? Seek riches with which... Didn't any of you have Book of Mormon with me? To do good. Don't forget that. Because we have some Latter-day Saints today that are, uh, uh, that are a blessing to hundreds of families who are less fortunate because they know how to do good with wealth and help other people. They don't just go around and dispense it. They just go along and say, what, what would you need to really get this thing going? And they'll say, well, more than I have. What would you actually need? Well, uh, 50,000 probably. Well, if I gave you 10, do you think you could, that would help with a little seed to kind of give others encouragement to support you? Yes, it would, and it does. You get 10, you can get others to support you. But if you don't have anything, you say, I've got a good idea. Would you like to put $50,000 my good idea? No. You say, I have a good idea and $10,000. I need a little more to get started. Would you like to double it with $10,000? Um, real good interest. Uh, five years, double your money. Then they'll do it. <laughs> okay, did I see a hand a minute ago? Yes. A second chapter of Jacob, Book of Mormon. Now, um, his royal court, as you notice, was kind of a phenomenal thing. And unless you go to Istanbul and see what an ancient court was like, it's impossible to conceive of these many cows and, and sheep and everything being eaten every day. And all this flour, tons of flour and everything being eaten. Now, when you get to Istanbul, you see the old court that operated until 1923, where they fed 14,000 people three times a day, none of whom were producing anything. They're all courtiers. They're all administrators for the Sultan of Turkey. That gives you an idea of what it used to be like in these ancient um, royal houses. So each tribe, you'll notice, would take turns for a month at a time to take care of the king. Now, I want you to get just a little bit acquainted with books that we're almost illiterate on. Psalms and Proverbs, Psalms mostly being David's, but uh, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, these are great writings and lots of people who are not members of our church and may, therefore maybe have more time I don't know don't have so many meetings or something anyway they actually practically memorize these but we seldom read them and they're rich reading they really are great reading and it's the one part of the Bible that I believe in studying as literature you know anytime somebody says I'm gonna have a class I want to study the Bible as literature I say what a not a waste of time at all most. Why don't you study the Bible for the truth that's in it and the history that's in it and all the things that God has done. And I find literary classes almost always miss the gospel in the Bible. They don't even discuss it. Well, that's why the book was given to us and the fact if it was written in the poorest of English in the very simplest of languages like the Book of Mormon. It doesn't pretend to be eloquent. You write in a foreign language like, like Egyptian. It's going to come out in English pretty plain. 3,000 word vocabulary no less. Or no more, I should say. But a lot of people like to study this as literature. Okay, that's fine. Because I'm in favor. I'm not an English major, but I have a great affection for the language. And where we have good literature, fine, I'm in favor of it. But I'm for truth. I, I want to find the nuggets. I want to find... The, that's what I really am after. And if it's been written beautifully, I'm happy about that. But just like I'm a beautiful picture and beautiful sunset. But mean, meanwhile, get the truth out of it. Well, 
Ecclesiastics and Proverbs are loaded with truth, beautifully written, powerfully written. And so I just want you to get a little flavor of it. Now, <clears throat> toward the latter part of his reign, or while he was at the supreme part of his reign, uh, Solomon had a visit by the famous queen of Sheba. That's a very famous visit of a queen to a king. And um, did she have uh, a malevolent uh, motivation in coming? What did she want to do to him? Show him up. Embarrass him. She's sitting down there a thousand miles away, and everybody that comes by, that's where all the spice ships came. She sees way down at the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula. And all the spice ships come by, and uh, a lot of wealthy merchants come by, and they can't do anything but talk about this uh, Solomon, Solomon, Solomon. Silver, just like rocks, nothing. If you haven't got gold, don't go. Um, can't, can't get a room even in, with silver. Uh, so she just can't stand it anymore. He's so clever. He's so smart. He has such a beautiful court. Oh, she says, this is uh, disgusting. So she loads up a caravan of camels, and she went in the very best Oriental tradition. And that doesn't mean the Far East. This is Oriental, too. And I want to tell you, when they want to put it, put it on, they can really dress it out. I've looked in Bedouin tents, made of the roughest kind of um, goat skins. And you'll see the shepherd out herding his sheep and he's got old rags on and he's got a hood down over his head and trying to stay out of the wind and the sand and so forth. He ought to go over to his uh, tent. It's like Hollywood. You push back those beautiful curtains they have. They got fur rugs, Persian rugs, silk drapes. It's really oriental lush. And they serve the finest of food. It, it amazes you. Now, of course, there's some Bedouin tents that are like gypsy tents, but um, I've seen some of these real fancy ones. They know how to live it up if uh, they make up their mind to. Uh, out, out with their sheep, though, you'd think they're very poor. But they got it back there in the tent. In any event, um, Queen of Sheba came with the very best. And first of all, when she got there, she's uh, tremendously impressed by uh, the way everything's handled. I'll tell you, it's high precision. Oh, the guards at the gate, the protocol, everything is turn right, turn left, do it this way. Everything is right on the button. And this is high precision royal administration. And she sits at his table with all these pure gold goblets and the finest kind of a service. And the casino, and you're just, just out of this world, the very finest. And uh, so then she starts talking to him, and there's no doubt about it. What a brain. That's high precision. And she gives him some of the, prob some of the, the uh, things that she'd been puzzling all over in her mind all her life. And this man, he knows about animals, he knows about stars, he knows about plants, he knows geography, he knows philosophy, he knows religion. And finally she says, it was a true report that I heard in my own land of the acts of thy wisdom. Albeit I believed not the words until I came and mine eyes have seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I have heard, O Solomon. As I mentioned here, there's, there's a wonderful, unique characteristic about feminine mystique. They can turn defeat into the greatest victory. And that's what she did. 
She turned to the court and she says, Happy are the men and happy are these thy servants which stand continually before thee and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God which delighted in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. Well, from this last statement, it's obvious that Solomon had not only answered her riddles, but told her a good deal about the history of Israel and the message of the gospel. To crown her tribute with a fitting climax, the queen majestically presented as a gift to Solomon the entire fare that she brought from Sheba. All of the lovely things and the gold and everything, she presented it as a gift. And of course, Solomon had to be gracious. He turned around and gave her some fine Israel gold to take back to Sheba. So that's where it ends. Now, the king of Ethiopia claims that there was a little something or other going along on the side and that uh, his ancestor was born as a result of a union between Solomon and the queen of Sheba. There is no basis historically for this whatever. And the tradition did not even grow up among the Ethiopians until many centuries after Solomon lived. And as I said in the closing paragraph, Solomon, as we shall see, soon had enough problems without being involved in a love affair with the Queen of Sheba. So that brings us to the next chapter.